Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 20 to 32. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. May God bless to our hearing and our understanding these words of Scripture. I don't know if this passage is familiar to any of you. I will be the first to admit that, especially reading it out loud in worship, it kind of makes me laugh. Have any of you seen the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Monty Python was one of my dad's favorites, so Holy Grail was a constant played in our house growing up. If you're not familiar, Monty Python was a British sketch comedy troupe who rose to fame in the 60s and 70s with the television show Monty Python's Flying Circus on the BBC and went on to produce many films in the genre of surreal humor or dark comedy. In Holy Grail, one of these movies, there's one scene where they are reading the instructions for the holy hand grenade of Antioch, which instruct, then shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three, and so on for several more lines. That's what this makes me think of. It reads as a rather ridiculous joke or a poorly written movie scene. It's so repetitive, there's far too much focus on math. 
But by the end of this, I hope we will discover together some of the deeper meaning of this passage. So today's passage comes within the context of a larger story in Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah. Those names are probably familiar to you and evoke a particular feeling. It is not my aim today in this sermon to argue about this story from the standpoint of gender or sexuality, but it needs to be mentioned nonetheless. As you likely know, Sodom and Gomorrah are described as sinful and depraved, and the example we are shown if you read a little further on in Genesis, is that of the men of Sodom pursuing sexual violence against the angels of the Lord. Stories such as this one, as well as words used elsewhere in the Bible that are translated into English as perversion or abomination, have posed challenges to people of faith for centuries, as Christians have used them to argue for the immorality of same-sex relationships. There are many arguments about what the central sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was, but from my perspective, it seems fairly clear that what it was not was homosexuality. Our modern understanding of loving, mutually supportive relationships between two people of the same gender was not a concept that would have been imaginable to most in this time period. Truthfully, such a relationship was not even what heterosexual marriage was. Marriage was primarily an economic institution, one of ownership rather than love, and sexual activity was for the dual purposes of procreation and male pleasure and or exercise of power. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were not of loving relationships between men. They were desires for violence and the use of sexual power to wield control over the non-consenting and vulnerable. So all of this little introduction is to say that personally, I am not interested in debating whether or not the God of the Hebrew Bible is hateful towards the LGBT community. Our God, simply put, is not hateful, full stop. And I believe wholeheartedly that queerness is affirmed and celebrated by my God. And I know you all do too, with our identity as an open and affirming congregation. But within the chaos of a story that is so often used for harm, there is this fascinating back and forth interaction that kind of pauses the action, this interaction between Abraham and God. It's sort of funny to read because, as we've seen, it's repetitive. But its context makes it a little bit more surprising. So Abraham is the original father of the Israelite people, and the father of three of the world's major religions that trace their histories back to him, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The primary thing that we are told about Abraham all throughout his arc in the Genesis story is that he is obedient. God says, go, Abraham goes. No questions asked. In his philosophical work, Fear and Trembling, Soren Kierkegaard describes Abraham as the epitome of faithfulness, models his whole theology and philosophy on Abraham's leap into faith. Throughout Genesis, God gives instructions, and then we are told, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham's full belief and trust in God, his seemingly unquestioning faith, continues up until the climax of Abraham's story, the command to sacrifice his son, Isaac. 
And in a story whose drama seems to play out in unbearably slow suspense, Abraham certainly seems not to protest at all, willing to do this awful task until God stays his hand at the last minute. It is after this ultimate show of obedience that God says that Abraham and his descendants will be blessed. But, as my favorite Hebrew Bible professor, Robert Wilson, says, it is notable here that while Abraham receives the promise and the covenant from God, he is not given the name Israel. He does not come to represent the whole nation that will issue forth from him by God's grace. Nor is his son Isaac called Israel. That name is ultimately bestowed on Isaac's son, Jacob, who earned it after a night of wrestling with God. All of the Hebrew Bible's narrative arc would seem to point towards a God who desires not mindless obedience, but engagement, active participation in relationship, even if that relationship at times means resistance. In short, this repetitive passage situated in the middle of this story, we see in Abraham the only glimpse that we get of the rebellious spirit that would come to characterize his grandson Jacob. God announces God's intention to destroy these cities deemed irreconcilably wicked and sinful. But instead of agreeing, Abraham pauses. Something here doesn't feel quite right. Maybe he can't even put his finger on what, but he is uncomfortable. And perhaps shockingly, he decides to voice that discomfort. We can almost hear the trepidation in his voice. It sort of makes me think of children's movies with ridiculous, foolish villains whose minions have to deliver bad news or dare to question their methods and sort of have to be very cautious. Abraham gingerly ventures to ask, Are you sure, God? You have to destroy all of them? Surely they can't all be bad. He seems to gain resolve and he butters God up a little bit saying, far be it from you to do such a thing. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And not only that, but Abraham keeps going beyond this. He keeps pushing his luck. He haggles and bargains God down all the way to only 10 people. And maybe surprisingly, God never objects. God simply agrees, granting the possibility of grace to the entire populations of these cities for the sake of just a few righteous people. The story of Jacob reminds us that God wants active engagement, wants us to wrestle with what is being set before us. But I think the message here is a little bit different. Jacob is headstrong, ambitious, wants what he wants and sets out to get it. This seems to be what drives his wrestling later on in the book of Genesis. But Abraham is driven to push back, to wrestle and bargain, not out of his own desires. He's not going to be hurt by this destruction but out of a sense that something is just not right. And not just against a human threat, but against his God. A God that has promised him, Abraham, everything. He will just do as God says. Abraham questions not just one action of God, but truly the very basis of divine justice. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, Walter Brueggemann says of this passage, Abraham is the bearer of a new theological possibility. He dares to raise risky questions with the Lord, with Yahweh. Up until this point in the Hebrew Bible, 
we have seen God yearn and strive for connection with humanity. But we have also seen God punish evil. We have yet to see a God of forgiveness, of mercy, this early in our text. But Abraham raises the possibility of grace, of sparing violence based on a few good people in the midst of so much abuse of power. And God, not arguing at all, accepts Abraham's terms of grace, should only ten people be found to be righteous in the city. Now, for those who know the story, we know that these ten righteous were not found, and the cities were destroyed. But I don't think that that's the point here. The point is that Abraham risks all to make a request of God. And it's not a request for himself or for his family. It's for grace and mercy that goes against the justice system assumed by that society. And rather than smite Abraham for pushing back or even argue at all with Abraham, God agrees. Perhaps all it takes for God to extend mercy is for us to ask. Perhaps all it takes to begin the reform of unjust systems and the reign of violence present throughout our world is to have the courage to give voice to our concerns, to care more about what is right than about rocking the boat. I heard another sermon once on this same passage when I attended a service at the Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. The preacher there drew our attention to the very small number down to which Abraham bargains God, saying that a very small group of people can make massive change. And I think that's true. That's a great message from this passage. But what the passage also shows us is that it isn't enough for those 30 or 20 or 10 people to simply be good and righteous, to be on the right side of history, to believe the right things. Someone has to speak up. Someone needs to ask the obvious question, to look at the world order as it stands and say, this doesn't seem right. Far be it from us to allow things to proceed in this way unquestioned. What in our society feels unfair, unfitting of a country supposedly committed to justice and opportunity? What in our churches seems unfitting for a group of people professing the love and grace of God? These are the questions that we are called to ask in the example of Abraham. Obedience has a place, but our story today teaches something different. Resistance is a holy act. When something in your gut feels wrong, when someone is telling you from their experience that a system is unjust and discriminatory, when the narratives that you have been told by those in power do not match up with what you see before you, obedience is not the position to which God is calling you. God wants us to speak up on behalf of the voiceless and the nameless to advocate for the needs of the most vulnerable. Whether that resistance means speaking out against our elected politicians, our church hierarchies, our teachers, our world leaders, or even God, God's self. As people of faith like Abraham, chosen and loved by God, we have an incredible gift. 
we know what the eternal, uncompromising love of God feels like. We know what true love of neighbor looks like, from the example of Jesus, our teacher and friend. We know what scripture, church tradition, our tenets of faith as they are practiced in our community in the world. We know all these things well. We know what we are called to do. And there are people all around us speaking up, saying what needs to be done, drawing attention to the problems around us. We know all this. What we are called to do is to trust those instincts and to speak up when no one else will. Amen.